You're listening to the Overfunctioning Leadership Podcast, learning leadership concepts through life experience. Well, hello, friends. Welcome to another podcast sponsored by Overfunctioning Leadership. I'm Alex. I'm John. And I'm Zach. I'll be the guest today. Uh, I'm Jared. Oh, Jared. Jared, what's your uh, last name, sir? Jared Williams. Oh, Jared Williams. Um, Jared Williams, where are you from? Uh, originally from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, made my way over to Ohio and been in Ohio for about 20 years now. I think uh, this is our like first guest that's out of state, but in the state. Really, he's in-state. He's an in-state <laughs> guest. <laughs> to be clear, I did not drive many hours to get here for this podcast. I've made that drive before. It'd be worth it. <laughs> so, John, could you, you know, who, who are we sitting here with since you? Yeah, so this is Jared Williams. He's a associate pastor at Redemption Chapel, and uh, Jared has a number of functions uh, at the church. And so he's going to talk a little bit tonight. We'll get into our uh, podcast topic. But uh, Jared is uh, an avid reader and is a uh, person that um, leads a number of different ministries at our church. So we're excited to have Jared with us tonight. Awesome. Yeah, and um, tonight's episode is number 31. So, John, whose episode is this? Uh, this would be in honor of Steve Olin, may rest in peace, the former Indian reliever who died in a tragic boating accident a number of oh, years ago. Yeah, was that in, like, Florida, right? It was. Oh, yes. man, in the 90s. 94? Yeah. 93? Mid-90s. Sometime. Okay, anyways. Yeah. So is it always in Indian? How does the number work, or how does the... Uh... <laughs> So is it any athlete, or how do you get the... Well, he just asked me. I just know jersey numbers. Jersey numbers. So he's Not a particular sport, or just... You no, know, no. Some of the number out, I can okay. uh, Some of the examples were, like, his, like, player from his church softball league when yeah. he played. Mm-hmm. Or, like, his... One of his jerseys from Mogador. Yes. You know, his away jersey. <laughs> yeah. So if this was school. episode 75, it would be... Mean Joe Green. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> Nice. He's he knows, on top of it. He knows it. So uh, anyway, so before we get into our topic today, which actually will be leading without being in charge, so that is what we're going to be talking about today, perhaps we should recap. And so last episode, we did willpower. And I brought this up because I've been thinking about it, and we talked internal and external willpower. So internal willpower will be about what? Uh, what what is your barrier to entry to to doing the thing that you're doing? Mm-hmm. How much are you providing, and then how much are you externally controlling that, such that you're minimizing the amount of internal willpower that you need? Uh, and then you, and then John, you talk a little bit about external. Yeah, I think of the external willpower piece of a particular leader of a system who uh, tries to get people to do certain things. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes their answer to that is to uh, yell, tell, and sell, or actually it goes the other way. I think it does. Tell, sell, and yell. How's that sound? Sound better? That sounds great. Yeah. I guess you can do them in any order. Uh Uh, None of which is very effective, by the way, no matter what order you do them in. Uh, But trying to exert will on the system oftentimes involves a burnout leader. Yeah. And then actually, Zach, you made a real poignant um, remark on the last podcast about how if you decide that you want to for some other people to do something, then your internal willpower actually goes up and there's a lot more at stake. So if it doesn't go well for you, then you are in big trouble. So if you want somebody to do something and they don't do it and it doesn't work out, then like you're risking it for the biscuit. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, anyways, 
Uh, so that was willpower. And so now we're going to go ahead and flip over to Fable. So we're going to get out the juice boxes. Maybe Capri Sun, maybe juice. I, mm, Capri Suns are always hard to get those stupid straws in. So I like the juice box. I never have any issues. Okay. It, <laughs> Wait, what? I, I'm hoping that's a blanket statement. Yeah. No okay. Issues. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, actually, our guest Jared has a fable, so we're gonna bring it over to you. Yeah, it's funny as I think of this, how to leave when you're not in charge. I've been chewing on this uh, recently, probably because I'm not very good at it. I was asked to read a book on this, so I think it's something of, but I think it's something in general that people can wrestle with. And when I think of this, I just think of. You know, you know, as John mentioned, associate pastor now, but, you know, like a lot of guys jumping into church work started in student ministries. And I just remember particularly the church I was at was going through some transitions, kind of up and down, you know, season for a while. And I just remember all the youth guys, particularly, you know, me and a buddy, we'd sit up in the youth room and just talk about, man, if we were in charge, here's what we do. And it was it's so easy when you're not in charge to to know what to do, you know. Mm-hmm. But whenever it's you're the one pulling the trigger on some things, it's a whole different ball game. And so, yeah, I know it's easy, at least for me, to fall into that trap where I'm not in charge. But if I were in charge, you know, and I I, I would know what to do. So, yeah, when I think of this topic, that's initially what comes to mind. Just sitting up, you know, complaining about not being in charge. And if I were in charge, you know, it'd be this easy. And, Never seems to be that actually. Hmm. So let's kind of look at that real quick, just right off the top. So if you're leading without being in charge, which we'll get to here in a second, but I mean, we experience this all within any system we're in is this complaining piece. And so that you could always do things better. So within a systemic, you know, where's that come from? So how is that anxiety? How is that all flow through things? Yeah. I'm just thinking of the question when you're not in charge and you, the example that Jared shared in the fable, is it that the leadership is incompetent? They're just not, you know, knowledgeable about how to make good decisions. Do they not have the will to pull a trigger when they should? Or is it maybe a lack of information on the part of the people that are sitting in the audience, if you will, or, or maybe not directly knowledgeable about the entire scope mm. of it? I'm just wondering where that comes from. Uh, as far as, because it seems like it's just not youth group work, but you know, you have students that complain about teachers, or you might have an employee complain about a boss, or so this seems to be a, a I don't know if systemic's the right word, but it seems to be pervasive in some level, and I'm wondering what's behind it. Yeah, because you'll get this. I mean, with kids with their parents, I mean, it's all it's a, it's the one down relationship, right? Where in a lot of ways you complain what's going up, so. So is it, is it incompetence? You know, we, we say that's what it is, that the reason that, that people that are not in charge maybe have difficulty with those that are in charge, could it be about the person in charge is just feckless and just not very good? I think, I think feckless. About, wow. Yeah. That's a good word. I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. <laughs> I, I'm also wondering, you've, we've all heard like, uh, we talk about adaptive versus like technical i think Mm -hmm. that's the comparison uh one of the technical ways that people try to address uh this sort of issue is to say instead of telling someone what to do let me ask them 
And so, so you see that with like parents and children a lot. Like I, I've seen this in my siblings, but also in myself, I always, there were times in my life where my mom would tell me to do something and I'm going to do it regardless, but I wished it had been phrased as a question. Would you take out the trash instead of go take out the trash now, you know, and how much control is it that I wished I had had as compared to just that obedience? Hmm. So incompetence. Can it be an incompetent leader? I think it could be. I mean, was my mom incompetent? <laughs> oh, no. Check it out. Next podcast episode. <laughs> or you could, Actually, I, I believe I interviewed her. Yeah, don't check that out. On YouTube. So you actually, could even just yeah. look at her then. and Check that out and see my incompetence. <laughs> I, I feel like I, it's easy for me to understand as well. I mean, you talk about anxiety, why that posture would, would produce such anxiety of... Because, I mean, so much of my complaint is dependent on somebody else. Like, I'm giving all of the outcome, all of the control to somebody else. And, of course, for me, man, that even just saying that can makes me feel anxious of, man, if they don't do this, they don't do this. And I have zero control over the outcome of this. I'm putting none of it on me and all of it on them. And so, man, that I could see how that would cause anxiety in me. I think through the scarf model, you know, we've talked about the scarf model before from David Rock and his work in neuroscience leadership that, you know, the, the, if you go down the, the acronym, Alex, I know you like acronyms so much, the, uh, the, the, a part of autonomy, the, the S part of status. So when you're in a one down relationship, um, you're, you're, of course, that's the status piece, the uncertainty, you mentioned that lack of control, that ultimately the decision relies on somebody else. So perhaps the systemic phenomena going on is that in all the scenarios that were shared earlier, that people that are in a one-down relationship lack status, lack certainty, lack autonomy, and perhaps because they're not in charge, they think they, they lack it's unfair, it's a lack of fairness. So that may be something that's going on that leads to that increased anxiety. So, Jared... It sounded, if I remember correctly, things were happening at your church that were different from what they used to be. And is that when you started, like, you had this conversation with this other guy about, like, this complaining? You said things were changing. Well, changing, yeah, I mean, I feel like it was always changing, but I think particularly the setting I was in, I mean, the church was really floundering, so there yeah. was change of leadership, but, you know, I mean kind of church world attendance fluctuating is a big deal. So I think, you know, there were some issues and, you know, the church was in a spot where I think it was floundering a little bit. So, yeah. Would you say that it was because like you just weren't used to the new leadership? Like, so when it comes to systems, right, they're always used to a certain thing. So they'll be used, they'll have a certain homeostasis that they settle into and they're like, we're, we are used to this type of leader, and then when you have a change, I just wonder if that was part of it. It has to be part of it as well, wouldn't you say? Like, since you had somebody new in there who's doing things differently, made it make you feel uncomfortable? Yeah, I don't know. I have to think about it. I mean, that doesn't you know, initially hit me like, yeah. oh, yeah, that was a massive change. Um, hmm. I think I disrespect most leadership I'm under, so I don't know if it's <laughs> it. No. <laughs> no, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. There definitely were, I mean, looking back on it, there definitely were numerous changes in leadership, you know, so I'm sure it play, pay, played a piece. Yeah. I mean, we talk about homeostasis a lot and how people just generate a certain base level of anxiety anytime things differ from what they're used to. 
So the fact that there was frequent change that you mentioned multiple leaders, like that's not good for a system that's used to people coming in, changing everything, it not working out and then leaving. You know, that, that almost sets you up for a system in which you're going to put in your input because you know that regardless of what you say, there's a chance that this person's going to leave anyway and everything is going to be different later. Yeah, I would say that in some ways, John and I, more than, John more than me, and I don't know, I'm not sure how much you, Jared, but like experienced different forms of leaders coming through our profession. So John and I have had, have, I've had three different uh, principles John, I'm not sure how many principles you've had. Mm, I'm going with six. Six. And then, Jared, how many different people have you had in charge through your career? I mean, on a guesstimate scale. Well, I think uh, the church I was at, I mean, so, I mean, it was, I mean, kind of the five years I was in that particular role, I mean, I, it was five different bosses. Yeah. So there was, yeah, a fair bit of turnover. And not necessarily just at the top, but, you know, my direct reports and all that. So there definitely was a lot of turnover, a lot of change in leadership. Yeah. yeah it just makes you wonder if, like, that's – since you know that's coming maybe, then you're just like, well, this person's not going to be around very long anyway, so who really cares what they have to – you know what I mean? That, that, that can easily seep into a system which there's so much turnover. And I know that I felt it a lot at, at the school that we're at um, for a while, although things have settled down quite a bit now um, because of pay and other things. But It's funny, though. Part of where I'm at with this topic uh, – I mean, I, I mean I, that's just the name of a book I'm reading, How to Leave When You're Not in Charge. So I don't know <laughs> if we've got to give credit to somebody. But the – the the main thing that I'm at least taking out of it now is that man feeling affirmed and just taking control of what I'm doing. But sometimes when I just look at the externals of that, like I can just put it on that and be make it a big excuse about it. Like part of what I want to do is okay, regardless of changing and regardless of what is in the system overall, I need to own what I'm over. You know, and so I think that's a, the biggest thing for me now of trying to think through, not just making excuses for what's above me, what's out there. Okay, what can I control and how do I, you know, do the best with what I can control? So I, mean, I feel like it's the main thing I'm chewing on right now. When you're dealing with someone else leading to, specifically when you find yourself complaining, it seems in my own experience that that often happens because. I'm tying myself to certain expectations that I am not involved with at all. Like I play no part in the outcome Mm -hmm. of the situation to meet or fail those expectations. And so, I mean, we talk about like so much of this is just learning how to manage your own emotional responses. When I say this, I'm talking about um, self-differentiation, Bowen's theory. How do you react when you encounter anxiety and stress? And so... When you are creating a situation where you're tying yourself to an expected outcome that you are not a player in, like there, there's no, there's a, a uselessness in that. Well, like we were saying with anxiety, I mean, it makes so much sense. Like, I mean, even as you lay it out, I'm, I'm tying so much of my hope on something I can't control. Well, that's just going to bring anxiety, you know. I, I think I've just reread Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits, and he talks about kind of sphere of influence and sphere of concern and talking about really, man, focus on my sphere of influence. But if I focus so much on just sphere of concern, but so many things outside of my influence, Mm -hmm. I I think he's saying a lot of the same thing. I mean, that just, yeah. Yeah. And then what's interesting too, is that like, so when you, when you decide to complain, we all do it. 
I mean, the root behind the complaining is some part of this is just to get closer to somebody else. So if I complain to Zach about John, this happens before every podcast. Every time. I'm always last to get here. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> or about my dog. See, we'll complain about my dog. Anyways, so we'll get closer together. You know, when you complain to each other, now our bond has become stronger and it creates this triangle, which the third thing we're talking about goes further away. And so part of that is that you're trying to gain favor in some way with somebody else. Oh, we have this. We can connect this way. You know? We're making teams. Yeah. Someone's going to win and you want to be on the winning team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I for sure think of the scarf model, too, particularly status. Like, most of the time when I'm complaining or putting somebody else down, it's to make myself look better. They don't know what they're talking about. What I'm saying, but I'm not saying out loud is, but I do, you know. I mean, anytime, I mean, we were talking about this recently, John, you know, just that anytime I'm complaining, putting somebody down, they don't get it, they don't get it. I'm letting everybody know, but I do. I mean, it's really, you know, I... And maybe that's part of the youth game, you know, oh, I'm a youth guy, nobody cares what I say, but man, if I can put them down and make it sound like it, I think it really is a poor attempt to up my status. And I think the journey of self-differentiation can help us be less likely to do that and be okay with the success of another and not be tied to outcomes, but just stay in my lane and focus what I can focus on and not be the circle of concern. Is that the word you used? Or the yeah, I think it's sphere, sphere, yeah, sphere yeah. of concern and, um, which could fall outside of, of control. And of course would raise anxiety then when we start trying to do that. It's funny when you say that, that definitely pings something for me of being okay with somebody else's success. And I'm surprised how much I'm not. And I, I think of particularly my anxiety coming out. I heard somebody say it recently, but just a scarcity model. And I don't know, I I just have, that's part of my worldview, that if they get success, if they succeed, then Mm. somehow I I can't. Mm -hmm. Like, there's only so much success to be had, and if their ideas succeed, that's less chance for my ideas Mm -hmm. to succeed. Mm. And I, I, I just have a view of... Just in a lot of different things. I mean, think of food. Scarcity of food causes anxiety, right? Because if you get food, that means I don't. Well, I don't know that that has to, you know, apply to success or recognition or, you know. But I do notice that so much. If somebody else, I mean, how pathetic is it in my world, you know, to where we're talking about like teaching God's word and giving a sermon. If somebody else gives a good sermon, Mm -hmm. how that'll have a a, a slight negative twinge in my spirit. Mm -hmm. Because I'm like, well, no, people will think they're better than me. Like, oh my goodness, can I not be happy that like that person, you know, did well, but somehow it's like an offensive or, you know, against me. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I was actually just talking with someone the other day about um, pastors and how when you have a lead pastor— They're just pieces of work. They are pieces <laughs> of work. I'm, I'm looking at you, and I can tell. But how different it is for that system, that type of system, because there are certain goals. Like you get this in a business, but because you typically have a such a hierarchical system that's already so— cog like you everyone has their roles and their little subsystems don't change quite as much at the top like it takes a little longer to flow down with a lead pastor coming in whole missions can change that directly change like yours like you are automatically as an associate pastor on you have to be on his team for his goals for that the whole church and how that's like a a big bullet to bite 
Hmm. That's funny. I, I would assume, why would, I guess, why would you, why would that be the assumption? Like, I, I would almost assume the opposite. For sure, as an associate pastor, you need to be on that lead pastor's team. So there is that, you right. know, unique tie. But in some ways, I would probably assume the church has a similar miss- mission that it always has had. Mm-hmm. And a company would be more prone to shift. You said cog-like. I, I guess I, I, I yeah. don't understand why you, Why would that be the assumption pa- that in a church of, it would be more that way, more prone to be Part that of way. what I, I think we were talking about specifically was um, the way that they're going to go about it and what they're trying to do. Um, you aren't ever really on your own team, right? You're never like – you are always working to accomplish – his overarching goal that could, I guess it's relatively subtle, but at the same time it might, might not be, um, for whatever comes happens as he comes into your system. So maybe he decides to, I mean, this doesn't happen all that often, but restructure, or f- let's say he wants to plant five churches in five years, and you're like, I don't know if we really need more churches in this area, but you're immediately mm. on that same team. I know that um, what we were talking about specifically was at my church, we actually have multiple campuses, right? And there's a talk about how it's become more corporate just as a necessity to manage the relationships between those organizations. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So is there anything else added on to that? Um, I want to pose a question yeah. about success and yeah, you know, asking the question, is success a zero-sum game? In other words, does somebody win and somebody lose? Or can we all be winners? And I think for most of us, success is, is a zero-sum game. And then what's behind that? What is behind What's behind that? Are you, are you asking if we can have win-wins? Yes, I'm asking if we can have. I've had. I've heard. Well, we've all heard people say, "You know what? I'm a win-win kind of guy." Well, who isn't a win-win kind of guy, right? I mean, not me. Are, I've always been a lose-lose kind of guy. Yeah, right. World wars. This is a win-win for everybody. No, it's not. So, anyways, you so, saying success in general? Yeah. Is I feel like the answer almost is easy to me. Of like the easy answer is, well, no, we could all succeed. But I mean, to me, then it is. But why does it not feel that way? You know, that's my question. Okay, so win wins. I personally don't think you can have win wins um, because within an organization in which we're trying, let's say we're trying to do the same thing, or I don't know, we're going for the same goal. There has to be some sort of compromise between people to reach that goal, and inherently within a compromise, some person's going to have it's not going to be able to put out their full you know, their full ideas of what's going on. So like if Zach and I are going to have, we have this great idea to have this website, which we've talked about like a thousand times, like a billion and a half. (laughs) And, but like, so I have my own ideas. Zach has his own ideas, but in order to come together to make this website, we're gonna have to compromise. And he has some ideas he's going to lose out on. And I'm gonna have some ideas that lose out on. So like inherently within that, it's, it's kind of a win-win, but if really I'm looking at it, like I'm, 
losing some things and he's losing some things and we're pushing this together. So sometimes, I mean, without having, I think without being self-differentiated, it could definitely seem like a win-loss. Um, geez, I just went in a circle. So I really believe in win-wins now. Nah, <laughs> I still don't like them. I always wonder how much of that is cultural as well. Cause part of you think of that, I mean, particularly in American culture, mm. right? I mean, <laughs> number one, there's no other place. You know, you're either first or last. And we're, uh-huh. you know, we're all about winning and being number one. I just wonder how much that colors our ability to see it, you know, any other way as opposed to, you know, there's one winner and about being the best. Where maybe there is much more opportunity. It is less, you know, zero sum than it may look. But, mm-hmm. I mean, that that's huge in our American value system, at least winning. Maybe our Japanese listener will pipe in for us. That'd be great. We can only hope I'll look at my phone and see if it starts ringing anytime soon. (laughs) My thought is the whole war and battle metaphor, like lose a battle to win a war. And I feel like the win win is let's go with the website metaphor. When Alex chooses or I choose to lose some battles in lieu of, fighting and winning that same war, a.k.a. putting up the website. But I think, to go back to your example, you're listening to someone give a bomb sermon, and you're, like, fighting to put down that little voice in your head that's, like, little disappointed because you're like, man, I saw some things he could have done better, but he's still killing it. But, like, I, you know, you're, you're putting down there's that, like, little twinge of humility, and it's fighting to make sure that you're trying to win the same war. And sometimes we don't get into the nuances of that where I might not even realize it, but part of my war is making sure someone else loses. And I think that's when you end up with the lose-lose. Like I say that I want to get the website up, and Alex says he wants to get the website up. But if what I mean is I want to get the website up my way, then there's no real good compromise for the situation except for Alex to back down. And so I've just like hmm. eliminated a tons, a ton of opportunities for us to come together and unite because I'm choosing to win every single battle every time, which sets me up for a loss. Hmm. There seems like a ton of underlying tension with this website. <laughs> yeah, like, I feel like it's usually like you just fight out in the front lawn and get this over it's with. The, <laughs> that's the plan. Misha will be out there too. And she'll be licking us as we do it. She's just playing the entire time. We're, we're brawling. Did you have a question, John? Well, I was just thinking about the website example, and then I was thinking about... <laughs> John's getting in on this. And, and I'm, I'm drawing a parallel between that and leading with not, with not in charge as an associate pastor or... You know, so in both cases, nobody really has authority. Mm. You know, none of you have a title that says, because of this title, this is the power that I have. Mm -hmm. And when one doesn't have a title, how do they influence another? And, you know, in, in comparative politics, you study the difference between authority and legitimacy, that a leader of a country has authority because they have a title, but they may not be considered to be legitimate in the eyes of the people because of decisions that they've made, et cetera, et cetera. So when I think about leading when not in charge, what do we do with this? How do we actually mm-hmm. you know, unpack this and be able yeah. to have some takeaways? I'm wondering if we get away from authority. I don't have it, but you still can still lead in that position 
by being legitimate in the role that you have and the expectations you have in that particular position. So, well, I have this the question. How do you do it? So how, how are we leading without being in charge? How do you lead? And I was looking at uh, Roberta Gilbert's when she talked about, you know, there's three things within a relationship. It has to be separate, equal, and open. Well, if you're in a one-down relationship, equalness can be very tough because, you know, you're in a one-down relationship. So, you know, how do you still stay equal in some ways? How do you still lead um, without having that title, without being in charge well and i think a big part of the takeaway is part of the misnomer you got to get at with that is Mm. as if there's one day where i'm going to be fully in charge like you're always under somebody you know so this magical you know now i'm in charge i mean at every point you know in the organization i'm a lead pastor i have elders over me you know if you have the elders over you eventually even you know the congregation is going to you know in some ways you're answering to them and so Mm -hmm. even the ceo there's boards above them so some of it is getting through that misnomer and particularly everybody's leading something, you know, I can't lead cause I'm not in charge, but even in that situation. So I'm leading the youth group. So everybody is leading something and back to that, you know, sphere of concern. Okay. What can I control hmm. and focusing on that? So I can get mad. Oh, if they would just push my event from up front, it'll do great. And then I kind of have a bad event, and then I just blame the leadership. What can I control? Mm. Making this event be fantastic. And yeah, maybe the leadership doesn't push it, and only five kids come. But those five kids that came would love it, and they're going to tell five more friends. And so, yeah, the big takeaway for sure for me is whatever I can control, whatever part of that process I'm engaged in, doing that with excellence and not allowing me not being in charge to turn myself into a victim and then just being able to blame them as opposed to, man, what can I control? Yeah, and it's not like a stick it to you either. Like, look what I did. You know, like, I did this sweet thing, and I'm sticking it to you guys. I, I told you my stuff would be awesome. You know, like, I, I, I've done, I've been there and done that too, where I, I put on some event and be like, yeah, oh, yeah, you saw what happened right there, and you should have listened to me the first, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, start building yourself up. But it's, a, it's the posture that you take within that. So let's talk about that posture. Like, so... You want to lead without being in charge. What is the proper mindset? Like, what can you do to start focusing on what you can control? Like, what does what that posture look like? So, so as you go into each day, as you go into whatever you're going to do, what, what can you do to, do to get there? Well, I think Jared hit on a good point about inputs versus output, that I'm going to focus on the input of the situation and the planning and the hard work and what I can control. And certainly even using language with, with others to say, this would be helpful for me if you could do this, whatever it is. And they may choose mm-hmm. to do it. They may ch- not, they choose not to do it. But I think if you frame it in that way by giving them autonomy and allowing them to choose whether to do X or Y, but stating your, an I statement, you know, Bowen theory talks about using I statements. This is what I think would be helpful. And then focusing on the inputs and realizing that there's part of stuff that's out of your control. Hmm. Zach, how do I do this? Um, I don't know. I'm still thinking through some stuff. Come back to me. <laughs> You're out. You lose. I'm out. Well, I'm moving on, Jerry. Part of it isn't a, you know, how do you frame leadership? And, you know, you're talking about, you know, politically, you know, is it authoritative? Or we say legitimacy? Is that yeah. the word you used? I mean, 
getting past the view that leadership is only a position. You know, mm-hmm. the only leadership is positional, you know, leadership. Well, if, you know, I've heard it instead of legitimacy, influence, you know, a sim- similar idea of, yeah, I mean, if leadership is influence, I don't need to have, you know, generally, but even in the title of that book, leading when you're not in charge means not the person positionally in charge, but I can still influence. So even mm-hmm. if I disagree with where things are going, did I do my part of t- stepping up? And this is difficult, stepping up to your boss and saying, hey, you know, I'll follow you either way. I think this is a bad decision. Here's how I would do it. Now, mm-hmm. I, it's much easier for me to whine about, yep. you know, how I would do it after it flops. It's much riskier, much more courageous leadership, okay, that I try to influence it towards what I think is right. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong, but that I try to influence those who are in charge and tell them, hey, here's what I think is best. What, but still being united with the mission, not trying to, you know, buck the system at all. But And I yeah. think that's a, a sign of a mature leader, too. Right is when yeah I've never done that but it just sounds yeah <laughs> yeah when, <laughs> when it sounds you nice. read it in that book <laughs> yeah, yeah whose author we still have not named and we won't until later um, but you know that there's a mature leader when you offer an idea and they let you put your skin in the game rather than taking your idea and running with it and then still continuing to assume all of that risk for that outcome saying hey. That's a good idea. Why don't you take charge? Why don't you put some skin in the game? Because that reduces um, that flippant complaining too, right? People mm-hmm. aren't going to complain and say that they can do it better if when someone hears that, they're going to say, well, then do it better, right? That mm-hmm. that I don't know if that increases well, – it reduces anxiety because it gives people – maybe it doesn't reduce anxiety, but it gives people an opportunity to hear their voice – um, heard to hear their voice heard, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They have ownership, so they start taking ownership of of yeah. part of what's going on. So, you know, you, you take the collective instead of trying to do it all by yourself. Um, then you take the collective, and then everybody has, as you said, skin in the game. So if it goes well, everybody does feels great, and it doesn't go well, everybody can feel that too. So, um, I'm not sure it really it, it would reduce. I think the systemic anxiety, um, the chronic anxiety, I would think. Uh, no, no, not chronic. Um, acute? No, no, the chronic, chronic anxiety. Mm-hmm. Acute anxiety could still happen because it could be a bad, terrible, whatever. But um, as we talked a lot about in this podcast, you know, reducing the chronic anxiety is going to be something that you should strive to do as a leader because the acutes are going to come and those are, you know, and you can change from that chronic to acute, but yeah, um, and I think that would affect for sure. Those two would flop because if you're telling me, you know, if I'm going to my boss, here's what I think should happen. He says, you know, like you know, like we just mentioned, okay, you're up, run with that. Like uh-huh. my acute anxiety is flying through the roof because now everybody's looking at me if I mess up. But like you said, overall chronic. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of the reason I just sit back and complain in some ways and don't speak up is it feels. You know, definitely less acute anxiety because, well, I got I got no skin in the game and I'm mm-hmm. just sitting back, you know, complaining. But I think that chronic anxiety in the system of just it doesn't matter what I do and yeah. my fate is in somebody else's hands. But I think it would flip those. But I think it would help yeah. for sure. The chronic anxiety, if I know I'm being heard and I feel like, man, I can have some say and control in my outcomes. And part of that is your posture of going to who's in charge in saying, this is what I think about this. And, you know, 
and, and providing that information to that person. Uh, that's and there's a lot of fear and risk into that. But then even at the end, I you know um, I remember doing this one time. There was something that happened at school. I don't quite remember. Um, and look, this isn't. I didn't go into this thinking this, but I just happened to be there. I did not agree with what was going on, and I said, you know, I think this should be different. And I don't really agree. And I told them that I was angry with them. But I said at the end. To your boss? Oh, yeah. yeah. But, but I said, but I will do whatever you think is best. And still leaving it up to them because they're still your boss. But you can. I, I think there's a place where you can still voice. You can correctly voice how you feel. But then also give them that affirmation of, but I still support you. You know, there's still some of that. And they might not. They just blow. They can just blow you off. But at least you know that you have dealt with the situation one-on-one right out front and say, you know, this is what I, this is what I think. And so, um, in in an appropriate way and not a yelling or I know better than you, it's, it's a, it's a tricky thing. And a lot of that is that external willpower too. And it's kind of odd because it's that one up relationship that you're not in direct control of, but there are times where you need external willpower and you're trying to have someone else change or do something because you view it as key to the the success or the outcome and sometimes that is part of the game like you don't always have control direct control over what needs to happen you need to trust other people and i think um letting someone else lead like being that good follower leader however you want to call it is making sure that you're picking those right battles because if you're picking those right battles then it's going to succeed, hopefully. Mm -hmm. But follow that back to your convictions. We talk about convictions a lot. And if your convictions are fueling that willpower, if you're doing something because you believe in it, because you have a solid basis for it, then you're probably doing the right, maybe not the right thing, but... I mean, it's your guiding principles. So, yeah. I mean, your guiding principles can change. So, as you're going through this and say, I go to my boss and I say, these are my guiding principles. And this is why I'm feeling that. You wouldn't say these are my guiding principles, but this is how you I could. feel. I mean, you could say, but like, this is this is how I feel the situation could go. And they decide not to go with that. But having a conversation with them, your guiding principles on this particular topic could still change. And, and by having that conversation with your boss and knowing their background of why they decided that situation, you could go, you know what, that's... You know what? I didn't see it that way, and now I understand. So my guiding principle on this, whatever we're doing, you know, like I have a certain guiding principle when it comes to how students within a school should get tardies or I don't know, whatever, you know, like discipline. But after listening to a person who is in charge, you might be able to change your guiding principle. So being open with that too. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm saying, yeah, be open, pick your right battles, and make sure that what you're choosing to fight for is something that you really believe in. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. So how do you think, I mean, to do that well, I mean, I feel like it's not an easy thing. You know, we probably wouldn't be sitting here (laughs) talking about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, to influence a leader, particularly when you disagree. I mean, I I think, Alex, you mentioned something, you know, that's great. Like, go reminding them, like, hey. I'm on the team. I'll go with your decision. I think that's huge. I mean, what are other ways that you know you feel like you can do that well or help you do that well with it not being an easy thing? So it's been my observation, and it's not, I don't think, a stretch to say that we're living in an anxious society. And one of the hallmarks of an anxious system is 
the desire for safety over risk and the desire for certainty. Um, and in an organization, the anxiety, if you could measure it in units of, you know, 50 grebes or something like that, whatever unit you would want to measure. Wow, 50 grebes, that sounds like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> 50 grebes of anxiety. My question is, how many grebes, how many units of anxiety does the leader have? So if you have an organization of 10 people and there's 50 units of anxiety, does each person have five units each? Or do you think that some have more than others in general? Mm. Or, does the, or does the cup overfloweth from the leader down, trickling on down to the, you know, the ones that they overlook? Yeah. Which then I mean, the leader fill. would have to have more, right? I mean, isn't that, wouldn't that be the assumption that the person in charge that has the... I don't know. Has anybody been in charge of... Well, you mentioned earlier that... Everybody's in charge of something. Yeah, yeah. you have been... So you said that if the leader said, yeah, go ahead and run with it, that immediately your acute anxiety would go up Mm. in in anticipation of getting ready for whatever that is, right? Mm -hmm. So I think in that situation, certainly it's not evenly displaced. Yeah, yeah. And one could argue that at least the leader has a disproportionate amount of anxiety compared Mm -hmm. to everybody else. So if that's true then how do people behave when they're anxious? Well, mm-hmm. they tend to be, again, risk-averse. They tend to look for certainty, which can look like do-it-myself because I know I can do it or I know I can control certain things. And it can look like black-and-white thinking versus looking at things more nuanced. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering from a one-down position, leading when not in charge, mm. if I can somehow try to with a leader, make them go from closed to a little bit more open by reducing the anxiety in the system, then the idea that I have, whatever it is, this is in the rational world idea, is going to get more traction because I thought about the emotional world first before I laid that idea out. Mm -hmm. And that could look like, so you talked about how much anxiety are people bringing. It's their base level from their families, Mm -hmm. right? So there is definitely a time, (laughs) there's definitely not a time to approach a leader. And I'm guessing that you probably know when those times are. So, you know, leaders freaking out, probably not the best time to, (laughs) hey, I got a great idea. How about this? You know, (laughs) then you walk into his office, see a desk fly out of the window. Bad time. Okay. (laughs) I'll come back. (laughs) So Jared, you had a thought. Is that poking in there? Yeah, I mean, it's just, so, I mean, part of, you know, I think of good decision-making, poor decision-making in my own life, you know, making just good rational thoughts as opposed to emotional, you know, and if anxiety is pushing me to just make emotional bad decisions, I don't know, sometimes I feel like just acknowledging it, getting it out there helps for me take it from the emotional to the rational. I was talking to a counselor of how, you know, PTSD, part of what that is, is, you know, trauma, you process in the emotional kind of adrenaline anxious part of your brain. And part of the difficulty is it never travels to the rational side of your brain. Hmm. So, you know, classic PTSD in war, you know, when you hear a pop, you need to run, but then all of a sudden you come back to the suburbs, you hear a pop and it's not rational to think that's a gunshot, but yet you don't think rationally. So I think sometimes even, and maybe with a leader, just acknowledging and talking through the emotions of it can be helpful. I don't know, going to the leader, hey, I know there's a lot, you know, I don't know maybe just help when I'm talking through, because I know in my life, 
it helped takes it it helps take it from the emotional to the rational part of my brain because mm. when I can move it to that part of my brain, I instantly can start thinking broader. But if I'm in, I mean that's how we're built. I mean and adrenaline when that shoots up, which is a wonderful thing in a war or in an escape scenario or something to hyper focus. But to make big decisions, we can't be myopic. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, how do we go from anxious to rational? And or how do you help your boss do that? Well, I think you've hit on an important point. I mean, that is the essence of leadership, of being able to influence another person. And if I can help influence someone else to be a little more thoughtful with the way I come across, with having a sense of legitimacy because the sphere of responsibilities that I've had, I've done those well. I think over time that leading when not in charge becomes easier because the person becomes simply more open to the thoughts that you have. I've seen it work. And I think systems theory suggests that it does work. And maybe it's not the same for every leader, you know, because part of even initially asking the question of like, give me the five steps that I need to do to help my boss do my way, you know, but as much as okay. And that's probably part of leadership too, of knowing the people you're leading I think a fusion and cutoff, like each person probably needs something a little different. Somebody might need a little distance. Somebody might need a closer, you know, mm-hmm. to close that distance. And so maybe it's too simplistic to say, here's what you need to do to help your boss as much as, okay, if I want to influence this person, what do I need to help them? And I don't know if that's the same for everybody. There's not five steps. Mm. Rats. What? What? There's not five steps? I- there's was, not an was, acronym that gives us the oh ways that we can support a leader. I'll throw my head through a window if you have an acronym for that. Don't I, don't there even. There is an acronym. Influence. I is oh, influence. Don't. N is N is now non-negotiable. <laughs> F is fairness. We oh, are agreeing that there's more than five letters in influence, so I'm curious where this is going. <laughs> I don't. I don't even want to know where this is going because I hate acronyms. We are stopping. We'll stop I'm it. stopping this right now. Just one. One other thought is, as a leader, and I don't. This doesn't really help answer our question, but great. So I'm going to say it anyway. But as a leader, like, what sort of system are you creating? Are you creating one that's rigid and it's not allowing for other people to? deal with their anxieties in your system. I think about, you know, in a workplace or in a church or wherever you are, whatever your system is, you're bringing in anxiety from your other systems. And so that openness as a leader, um, giving people the opportunity to bring in multiple levels of anxiety. And like you're saying, John, help them think a little bit more rationally. What is the leader's responsibility to the people below them to um, redirect or rationalize their anxiety that's coming from other places. Mm -hmm. So if I was going to, I don't know, recap this a little bit here, Uh, from what I've been hearing, here's some some of the things I've been hearing. Uh, How how can you uh, lead without being in charge? Well, uh, good luck, number one. Um, (laughs) There's not five steps. This is a process. And a lot of it, from what we're talking about, is, is a posturing of, okay, what is my posture when I step into my system? What, what, what am I bringing to the table as far as my own anxiety? And is there a way that I can bring in less anxiety to the system and allow other people to also lower their anxiety by 
focusing on the inputs, being clear with my expectations, using I statements, um, getting closer to the leader. So if, if you want to influence a leader, who's somebody who's above you, getting close to them, you know, being curious with them, asking them a lot of questions. You talked about helping them get to the rational world, asking questions about it, just being interested in them overall. And then there's some appropriate playfulness in there, too, of, you know, having some sort of rapport with them as you ask them questions. People love to talk about themselves. So asking them about their ideas is we all love it. I mean, and, and we love when people ask questions about us. So that seems that and this is a long play. This isn't just like, OK, check that mark off. And, you know, I've got my curious out of the way and now we're moving on. This sounds like a long process. Yeah, I would say. Um, any other pieces or parts to recap of how to lead, uh, without being in charge? I mean, I think I did a pretty awesome job. And so yeah, you if you have anything that. else, then you should probably be quiet. And I would, <laughs> the, the very first thing you I'm said closed. in that, I think was be aware of what you're bringing into the system. And I think that's what I was getting at before you recapped, right? Was just be aware of yourself and what you're bringing in. Did he just rebuke you for an early recap? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh-huh, That's what I was uh-huh. hearing. Yeah. You think you're in charge of this thing? I'm leading this. I'm driving this bus. I'm just like thinking, what desk can I throw out of what window right now? Okay, well, there's you no know, desks in here at the no moment. There's no desks. So I got books. a bowl for a cup. Yeah, I know. I hope you like that. Uh, anyways, okay, so... I think that did a pretty good recap there. Um, I believe we do have some things we need to talk about when it comes to social media and whatnot. Um, You can listen to us on iTunes. Google Play. Google Podcast, as we've sort of discussed but don't really know much about. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can check us out on YouTube, uh, see our pretty faces. Uh, We got our Facebook. I don't know if we said that already. Uh Uh, Perpetually working on a website, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But there's no anxiousness about that. We know where we stand. You know, it's my ideas, Alex's ideas, and they don't butt at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's mostly your ideas and you don't listen to me. Not at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Jared, thank you so much for coming on. We'd like to have you on anytime. Not any day because we only meet on certain times. But hey, (laughs) we would love to have you again. So... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. So with that, I think we're wrapping this thing up. Um, do we need a shout-out to Jesse Huffstetter? Yeah, shout-out to uh, Jetler. You can find him on Spotify. He's released a little bit there. Uh, we sometimes post links to his stuff in our show notes. <laughs> sometimes. And uh, you can contact us where, John? At uh, theofpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, that is yeah, correct. That's great. That's yeah. impressive. I know that. <laughs> you look so confused as you said that. I, lo- I was hoping for you to mess it up. I was really going to come down hard on you. Okay, well, anyways, uh, with that, I'm Alex. I'm John. I'm Zach. I'm Jared. And we will catch you next time. See you around. Adios. Adios.